a lot of them. Ice on me, I'm popping. Try and get like me. All righty. Happy Friday, everybody. We have one of my favorite founder entrepreneurs. Um, we've got Steve O'Dell, co-founder and CEO of Tenzo T. Monster, great guy, amazing product story and brand. So excited to have you on today, man. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, DG. Really excited to be here. Hell yeah. Um, well, Steve, not only are you uh, amazing at creating content, brand, um, you know, you have a lot of really inspirational posts that you put out, which I'm a huge fan of. I love to follow what, what you're doing. Um, will you share a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and, and how you got into the matcha game? Yeah, so um, I'm from Rochester, New York, which is upstate on Lake Ontario. And um, I grew up in the city. I have four older brothers. And then um, came to California when I was like 10 years old. And I was like, man, this place is freaking awesome. And then um, had the opportunity to go to UCLA and play volleyball. And so I played on the men's team there. And then, um, yeah, after and during college, I actually, I went on a date with this girl and we got um, a coffee. And then I, that was the first time I ever had coffee when I was like 20. And then I went down this path of like, you know, increasing my coffee consumption. And um, yeah, one day I just had way too much coffee, you know, like five cold brews felt like crap. And then Googled, you know, healthiest form of energy and found matcha. And then um, started Tenzo and the rest is history. Amazing. And and so you're in college and were you just drinking like multiple coffees per day and crashing? The fact that you didn't have a coffee till your 20s is pretty wild. Um, um, yeah, I mean, that that's the gist of it. It started out really small, like just like a vanilla latte before class or something. But then it was like, now, I'm, uh, yeah, I just like, I love it, you know, and you caffeine, I didn't have it for so long. And so it was like a, a very new experience. And then, um, but yeah, I would just crash, you know, get the jitters. My stomach would feel terrible. Um, kind of all the side effects. Where was the first matcha you ever had? Um, I actually got it from this guy who was private labeling it in Arizona. This is when we first started. And um, I had, he sent us like, I don't know, probably like, 10 different types of matchas and we tried them all out and it was actually in my apartment in Westwood at UCLA. Amazing. And, and was it like the second you tried it, you're like, man, there's something really powerful here. I'm a, this makes sense. It solves a lot of problems. B the health benefits are incredible. C it's not really represented well in the market. What was your thinking? You know, cause uh, obviously I know that you made this decision to go all in, which is incredible. But what was the initial like spark that that drove that decision? Yeah, so health benefits is you know probably number one, and then um, another big concept for us like you hinted at this notion of the market. Um, and my favorite uh, modern philosopher, this guy named Nassim Taleb, he has a really great concept called the Lindy effect, and that basically says how long something has been around in the past is an indication of how long it will be around in the future. Kamaja has been around for, you know, about a thousand years now. And um, it was drank, you know, traditionally by monks in Buddhist monasteries who needed um, the right type of energy to meditate. So transitioning that into the modern world, I was like, oh, man, you know, basically it didn't exist in North America at the time. Like you couldn't get it in cafes. Starbucks wasn't selling a matcha latte, you know, and so timing, I think, was a really important one for us. And we wanted to be we wanted to ride this wave. And we didn't want it to be like a six month wave. I want, I was looking for like a hundred year wave where we could build like a, 
a, a really big company over a long period of time. So why didn't matcha exist in Starbucks at that time? It's been around forever. What was the, what do you think the reasoning is that it wasn't really quite mainstream? Um, I think education, you know, and so you look at, I mean, I, I really love the Starbucks story. I pour your heart into it by Howard Schultz is a, a it's amazing book. Yeah. If you're in CPG, highly recommend reading it. But um, no, I would say that, you know, matcha, even like right now, or definitely five years ago, in, in 2016, at least it was, it was like Folgers maybe, you know, so it was very niche. You'd have it in these weird situations. It wasn't really done right. And, you know, matcha, very similar to coffee and wine, has a very large spectrum of quality. So if you're not, you know, very particular about where you source the product from and how you make it, and, you know, like I hinted at earlier, that educational concept, you know, you could have a very bad or different experience. Um, yeah, and so, like, you know, Howard brought, you know, the fine Italian espresso, and Tenzo is going to bring, you know, fine Japanese matcha. Can you share the differences in quality between different types of matcha how do you tell um what a premium matcha is versus a basic or um you know how do you guys look to filter through a lot of the subpar product on the market yeah it's a great question so the three main ways are like you know color so this is probably the worst of the three ways because sometimes color can be slightly deceiving um but yeah so color so like if you have like it's like brownish or very yellowy. That's typically a lower quality matcha. And then a bright, vibrant green is typically, you know, a ceremonial or a high quality matcha. And then the other one, you know, the biggest one is probably taste. So it's very easy. You know, if you have a low quality matcha, it'll be very bitter, bitter, um, like extremely bitter. Um, and not like a nice kind of bitter, like a striking, like nah, get this out of my mouth type of thing. And whereas a really high quality matcha is super pure, you know, it just tastes great and good and smooth. And you can typically a high quality matcha, you can drink it plain or with milk or however you want. Um, but a lower quality matcha, you would like, you'd literally never drink it by itself because it's so gross. Right. And I think the, the parallels that you mentioned between like a fine wine or different varietals of matcha and, and a coffee, the, the different types of blends. So I, I obviously saw that you guys went on this amazing trip to Japan. Can you share a little bit about, you know, how that came to fruition, how you quit, uh, you know, really dropped out of school to go all in on this. Uh, I think it's that moment when you, you make that huge life-changing decision is so important. How did you come to it and what are some of the key learnings in doing it and, and going after your dream and making it happen? Yeah. Let's, let's say that in two parts. Like one is dropping out. I mean, so I had like no money. I was like, you know, the classic like broke college kid. So like yeah. to Japan when we first started wasn't an option. And so what we did was, you know, we tried matcha. I tried it with Robbie, my co-founder is the man. Shout out to Big Rob. And um, yeah, you know, we just thought we could start a company from that. So like we contracted this guy in Arizona. He made us finished products. So if you're not on CPG, that just basically means like, they will source the ingredient, they'll get the packaging, they'll put the label on it, they'll handle like the certifications and all that. You know, and so we bought like as much as we could afford, like 100 units to start. We sold 100 units and then we bought 500 units from him and then we bought 1,000 units from him. We just kept all the money in the company, you know, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, and so like after we started, like actually right before we started selling, I was like, you know, 
I, I'd been out there my whole life. I, I, I really believed in, you know, investing in myself as a person. And I wanted to focus on getting knowledge, building assets and building a really great network. So I dropped out and um, I like believe in this concept called burning the ships, you know? So like Brandon Cohen also shout out to Brandon at Liquid IV. He like kind of popularized this for me and it's really like, you know, go all in and give it everything you got and there's no looking back there's no way out you know and so no matter what you go through in life you, you got to figure it out so i thought that was a really you know powerful thing and that's what i did and you know we faced a lot of crap over the years and you know that kind of notion of like oh there's no going back to my other life you know like this is it um really powered me through so i, I actually really resonate with that by the way and i think the the, the concept of a safety net is actually 100 holding you back and anyone back because I mean, Steve, I, I feel the exact same way. You cannot push yourself to your limit and your full potential if there is a plan B or a backup plan. So I, I'm all about burning the ships. I, I kid you not, man. It's like on my wall. I, I live and breathe it every day. If if you want to do something truly great, you can't just do this as a side hustle or be side or, or be partially, you know, half pregnant on it. It's it's all in. It's a lifestyle. So yeah, it, I love that. Good expression. So, yeah. So, you know, I dropped down and moved on to Rob's couch and you know, we're scaling the company from there. And, um, you know, after a while, like six months in, we had enough money to go to Japan. And so we learned this crazy thing, which you obviously know about DG, which is every single company that is sourcing matcha in the U.S. right now, um, besides Tenzo, is sourcing from the same two companies. I'm not going to wow. brands or manufacturers or whatnot, but that's the way it was. And so we ended up finding this guy in Arizona supplier, cutting out the middleman. We go to Japan, we visit that supplier and the other supplier as well. And, you know, we had a good time and there's potential to build, you know, a business with them. But it, in the end, like it was kind of a weird mental spot. Cause like, you know, you're creating this brand and you're making a product, but it's really the same product that everyone else has, you know, like, isn't that kind of like a weird concept? You know, and so we didn't want to do that. <clears throat> and um, we got incredibly lucky. Um, this was like the moment of, of glory for Tenzo. Like our last day in the Kyoto train station, I was just Googling tea farms and shops nearby and, you know, found one that was like a 30 minute train right away. Get on the train, we go there. There's an old Japanese couple, a man and a woman. Now it's pretty striking because I'm 6'6 six, six, and you know, Rob is like 7'1. So we walk in and this, they're like, what is going on? <laughs> We're... We're like trying to talk to them. Series like live translating. Rob's like pointing at his camera and like pointing at tea fields on a Japanese newspaper. Like you know, where's the farm? And um, you know, it didn't work out. And so we leave and we're like, oh, we're just gonna walk to the next one. And um, halfway, you know, on our way to the next one, a black SUV pulls up. It's the old man from the first shop. That man motions to us to get into his car. <laughs> You know, we look at each other like, ah, oh, you know, you know, should we do this? And of course, uh, we got in his car and um, we drove around to a bunch of different tea farms, got a lot of great pictures, you know, and um, had like a Disney like experience. And um, it was crazy. And that was magical. And I was really grateful for just that. But then we got an email. So now we're on the, the train back to Tokyo. We got an email from the old man's boss. That guy's boss is a tea don in Japan. He knows that basically there's only two suppliers. That's so we we also know that, and we're talking about this. Then he tells us to meet him in Las Vegas in two months in the cafeteria at 1 p.m. on Tuesday. Pretty pretty freaking weird. 
So we no no calendar invite. He's just like yeah. No. <laughs> it was like a top. It was like so covert. I felt like a spy, but it, you know it was okay. like, that that was the closest to a spy I've ever been. Let's say. Okay. And um, yeah, so we go to Vegas. We meet up with this guy at 1 p.m. on a Tuesday in the back cafeteria, and um, yeah, we basically we talk it out and we agreed to create you know a set of matcha products that are exclusive to Tenzo and proprietary to try and take on. Um, the other two companies, this guy ends up investing in Tenzo. He's our second largest investor, you know, so we basically become this quasi manufacturer and brand um, and ingredient supplier all at the same time um, with the end goal of, you know, eventually like dominating the matcha market in, in North America. And, and yeah, so that's kind of the, the, and then, you know, I guess, as they say, the rest is history, but that's kind of the backstory on how we got started. And then um, from there, it's just been, you know, a rocket ship. It's amazing, man. And and I'd love to talk about what the matcha market looks like today. I've seen everything from RTDs to, um, you know, powder and a tin. And um, I've seen, you know, retail shops, pop coffee shops, matcha shops pop up. What do you think about the matcha market today? Um, and where is it heading in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I mean, today I think it's very niche, you know, so the concepts that you're mentioning, like RTDs and the cafes, um, they're very localized to, I guess, like it's, it's a bi-coastal kind of thing right now. So New York, LA, San Fran, uh, maybe a little bit in the pack Northwest and the South, Southeast, but yeah, it's very localized. And so what I think is going to happen in the next five, 10 years is that those things are going to come inland and target like middle America and move into Walmarts and, you know, places that the bi-coastal like, kind of regions aren't really shopping at yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's growing really quickly and, you know, I think it's going to grow a lot and the data is showing that it is growing a lot. And, um, it's still really small. So matcha is only on, I think, 3% of menus of all cafes all across the country. And That's it's, wild. Yeah, but it's grown like 400% in the last three years. You know, so I mean, that's that's like rapid growth. And the goal for us is to like, one, not create a product that is, you know, too far ahead of the educational curve. So it's like we want to ride the wave. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves and like fall off the board. Um, and then, yeah, so just being well positioned to, you know, capitalize on the growth of the market, but not get too far ahead of ourselves. Um, yeah. Is there a channel you're most excited about, whether it's food service, uh, grocery, online? Um, what are you the most excited about? I mean, I don't know. D, D to C right now, for sure. Like that is just, it's been a really, really fun ride. Um digitally and um but yeah i also believe in a lot of potential in food service and yeah so we're going to start with those two and then also continual supplying like as bulk ingredients and stuff like that um and then we take those basically profits and shovel them into marketing and stuff but when uh, it comes when it comes to d2c it's a pretty scary world for a lot of food and beverage brands unless you're hitting certain aovs the cac makes sense you got a subscription model um i've talked to people with you know uh salty snacks or like shelf stable products that are like man everyone would think d2c would be a home run but it's you know you got to get huge pack sizes for this to make sense and the margins are tough then you look at beverage beverage is heavy 
frozen impossible to make, you know, to build a profitable frozen D2C really hard. Um, you know, how do you think about paid spend? I think your category is probably really perfect for D2C, but how do you think about that in Amazon? Yeah, so, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean, we're not on Amazon at all. Um, they'll just suck your margin dry. And, you know, I, there's there's some benefits, obviously, in terms of like the size of distribution, but you don't get a lot of customer data. So, yeah, we're just focused on our website. And um, I am really bullish on it for Tenzo. You know, we have very, very good data practices and we understand all the metrics. Like you said, we've optimized pack size. I mean, we went through so many iterations to get to where we are now. And um, yeah, we have a subscription model, like you said, with very high retention. And when you have very good retention, that equates to this, you know, really, really positive business. Like it, it just flows and the customers stick around for a long time, you know, and that's a, it's a really positive thing. So I don't want to unveil like too many D to C numbers. Cause I think that, you know, kind of no need, no need for numbers. Right. I think it's more so just on like some people are like, is D to C worth it for a CPG brand? Um, well, dude, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like low pack size is not going to work. You know, frozen is not really probably going to work either. Um, you know, so you really need to be super strategic about what you're doing. And, you know, you, you really should not get into D2C unless you understand those numbers like really, really well. Um, but yeah, Tenzo, a, we're a powder. It's super light. You know, the, there's a very high value to the product that is very light. So shipping is very low, you know, so we have just the economics essentially just work in our favor. Um, <clears throat> and that's why we're just, we have this, the gas is on right now in D2C. And can I ask, you know, you're a, a you're really savvy guy when it comes to building brand and growth hacking. You know, I think obviously LinkedIn is where probably our both of our favorite channels. Is there anywhere else that you, you know, can you talk about your LinkedIn strategy and maybe some other growth hacks or brand awareness strategies that you've that you've seen that have been really helpful for, for your guys brand? Yeah, you know, I think the overarching concept is, you know, with, with LinkedIn, also good social platforms, it's like you need to, you know, be really consistent. You know, you need to have great content. Um, and those are kind of the two things. And, you know, you can take a lot of swings, but um, the trick with social is to not hit singles. You know, you want to hit home home runs or grand slams. Um, so I look for places like that. You can hit just huge grand slams, you know. And so right now, and I know you're you're freaking on this, but it's just TikTok, TikTok and LinkedIn. Um, the algorithm is super in your favor, you know, and you can get a viral video on TikTok you know, you'll get 10, 10 million views, you know, pretty easily. And then um, on LinkedIn, it's probably not quite as high, but, you know, you can easily post 100K, 100K posts all the way up to millions of posts um, just with consistency and interaction and stuff like that. So I like, I really like this concept of big swings um, for digital and e-com in general. So it's like for the e-com side, it's like doubling your pack size, you know, taking a drastic swing, doing a big variation of content, really changing your website. And for social, it's like trying to produce viral content um, and don't hit singles, like avoid singles at all costs. You know, I mean, if it's Instagram, it's kind of like a landing page at this point um, and a, it's sort of an interaction platform and a way for you to connect with influencers and stuff like that. But yeah, I would, I would just focus on, you know, go where the, the algorithm is and the views are and then you know, hit home runs. Couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think just putting really unique and differentiated content on platforms with organic reach consistently every single day 
because so many people they're like, I don't understand why are you posting every day? That's a lot of time. And then I just show the aggregate views and how it compounds. You know this better than anyone. It's like, I'm shocked. It's free. It's zero dollars. It's five minutes of your time. Yet you'll spend tens of thousands of dollars with agencies to get thousands of views on Instagram. Like what are, why are people not doing this? Why do you think that is like, really? I think they're kind of scared. Um, I don't think people really, you know, I think a great, great founders, like, you know, really like putting themselves out there and will be at the forefront. But I think a lot of people like are really nervous about it and they posted once or twice and it didn't work and you know, that's it. And then they stop. Um, but I, I posted fuck, like, sorry to swear, but like every no, single, you're good. every single day for like a year. Yeah, uh, I know. I got no views. <laughs> and then it was like, and everyone's like, you're crazy. And all of a sudden it just like, it just exploded, Boom. you know? And yeah. I also think it's just part of like running a business, like, and playing sports. It's like you do something once, you're not going to be that good. And you do it 10,000 times and you're going to be pretty damn good. So, you know, Have you heard I, the John Paul DeJoria, you know, theory and what he does. No, no. Give it to us. All right. I mean, I know you love founder stories. So John Paul founded Paul Mitchell and also uh, Don uh, Patron um, is his whole thing. He doesn't care about email. He literally went door to door selling Paul Mitchell. Same thing with Patron with buyers. But he's like, I literally will not stop going door to door until I make the sale. And he did that. That's how he, how he scaled Paul Mitchell was he went salon to salon to salon to door to door to door. And he's like, if I don't stop, I will eventually win, period, the end. And he's right. And, and that's why he's as successful as he is. No, um, totally. I mean, yeah, you get this too, you know, the retail presence. But that's how he grew food service. It's just like we went to this one cafe and they said no. And we went to another one and they said no. And then we went to this other one and we're like, these other two cafes just said no, like you have a huge potential. And then like, he was like, Oh, I'll try it out for a week. And like he buys it for that week. And like, we send all of our friends and we're there sampling. And then, you know, he has good numbers. And then we take that data. We go back to the first two shops and we're like, mm-hmm. dude, John is killing it. I can't believe he said no, he's making an extra grand a week. And they're like, Oh my God, we've got to get this product, you know? And then it just cascades from there. Plus, the more people that know Tenzo and your brand, like even just pitching to someone is marketing. I think people forget that. Even pitching to an investor is marketing. Like you are spreading. It's Howard Schultz, one cup at a time. How he would, yeah. pour, you know, tell the Starbucks story one cup at a time. It takes a long, it takes years. But if you do that, it compounds and eventually, you know, you can build a global brand. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, anyway. So, uh, on top of that, man, can you give some advice for people who are looking to quit their job, you know, really make a radical change in their life to go build a, uh, you know, food and beverage brand? What advice would you give yourself or those people who want to get into the space? Um, yeah, I mean, quitting your job, I'm probably not the best guy to ask that question because I've never, I've literally never had like an actual job in my life. Um, I think dropping out of school is, you know, that's, that's a ballsy bet. And I, I, I admire you for it. I think it's really badass. So how about that? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're going to try and do something radical, like I would say, like, you know, you want to have a pretty good sense of, you know, your level of certainty around the thing. And obviously there's high risk in entrepreneurship in general, but, you know, you want to take a good swing, not like, you know, take a big one too. It's like, go for something radical. Um, But yeah, like, I I don't know, like I I was very young. Like I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't, there was like no like pressure to like be like a, a billionaire, you know, and, um, 
I don't know if you have a family and kids, I think it's kind of a different situation because you, you have a lot more responsibility. Um, but if you don't, then, you know, if you're going into CPG, I would say start with product and, you know, spend 12 to 16 months and really make something super special. Um, give it to your friends and family, have them try it out, um, make sure it's super sound. And um, yeah, then from there, you know, I would pick the right channel first. Um, so I think that's a critical thing for a CPG founder is that people, you know, really don't think about enough um, or they're too bullish and they want to grow in all these ways and they pick a wrong channel and they get really hurt by it. Um, so yeah, pick the right channel, make a good product and then, you know, start going door to door. Like you said, go get customers, sell one bar, sell one, you know, popsicle, one pack of mantra, get feedback and iterate fast from there. I also, I also think, you know, and I've seen you write some content about this and I agree is like everyone thinks they got to raise $5 million pre-revenue on a concept that they can go take to market and that's how you build a brand. And I, yeah. I don't really love the headlines because they don't truly, you know, celebrate the best entrepreneurship practices. And, and what I mean by that is if I had $5 million when I was started, when we were starting this company, I would have failed because I would have tried to scale a frozen D to C ice cream company. And that's not what was the right business. Like we needed to go retail. I bet you if you started and you had $5 million, like, do you think you would have executed your business to the best of your degree after all the key learnings over the years? Like, no way. I would have, I would have lost it all. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell I was doing. You know, I mean, that's like the, one of the most important lessons, especially when you're just starting is like, you know, you need to get like really good at this. It's not like a game, you know, when I was out of college, I was like, Oh, like I'm just going to go in and kick ass, you know, like all super naive. And that, that is a superpower in some sense, but it's also like, you know, I've really learned that you need to become a, a, a really good operator. Like, you know, you need to be really sophisticated in your understanding of direct consumer and retail and food service and all these things. You need to understand finance and operations and supply chain, you know, and it's like, you know, I think just peppering in little amounts of money at certain times is really yep. important. It, it helps you make mistakes and get through them, you know, and then just get to the next level. But I think, yeah, there is a kind of going back to your question, you know, there is a, a problem, I would say, with these companies that are raising too much money, especially if they have inexperienced operators. Um, it's literally like they're shooting themselves in the foot, you know. Um, and if you're looking for a good book on this, Ramping of Brands by James Richardson and others. So good. So good. Yeah. So unbelievable. Good. You know, and so after reading that book, like Rob and I just had like a very frank conversation. It's and it's like, you know, we don't need to grow, you know, five X a year. What we really need to do is plan really well and grow, you know, two to three X a year. And if there's anything more than that, then that's icing on the cake. But you know, just being really disciplined with that and making sure you have enough money, you know, at any given time to to fund future growth plans. Um so important. Well, I just think that there's this unnecessary pressure because of the headline reading in the space yeah. that, you know, founders can feel like their investors expect five to 10 X year over year growth and an exit for $600 million in three to five years. And it's like, guys, everyone is in our X bar. There are anomalies. There are really unique situations that happen with these exits. The statistics, you know, you can't, you can't force exponential growth in two years or else you run the risk of making a really bad mistake that could put you out of business. So I, I just think it needs to be spoken about more. Um, I mean, you know, the, the interesting part though is if you double every year and you put that on a, 
you know, a curve over 10 years, that is an exponential curve. So it's yeah, like I know. people don't get that. You know, it's like 10x growth a year is pretty crazy. You know, I, I have I don't think I've ever heard of a D or like a CPG company that goes from like hundred K to a million to 10 million to a hundred million in revenue. Like I, I just don't think that exists. Like most curves are like very, very slow and then it's just kind of a yeah, hockey stick at the end. Exactly. Awesome, man. Um, well, Steve, I'd love to, I want to be cognizant of your time. I know how busy you are. What is your, really your mission with, with Tenzo? What, what, what's like when it, when things get really tough and you're, you're dealing with those awful days because we all have them, you know, what gets you through this and what do you hope your legacy will be with, with Tenzo and what you and, and Robbie and the team are building? I would say just help, helping a lot of people, you know, that's kind of a, you know, very general um, expression, but it's really meaningful. So I love interacting with our customers. And, you know, if I'm having a really crappy day, um, what I'll do is I'll usually go and read customer reviews. Um, and when someone says like, oh man, I've been having jitters or anxiety every day for drinking coffee for the last five years. And I've been drinking Tenzo for two weeks and, you know, I feel totally different. I feel much calmer and nicer and my stomach doesn't hurt. Um, that's a really positive thing. So, yeah, and, you know, there's so many of them, and they come in all the time, and it's just like this constant source of motivation, and, you know, it really keeps me going. So, yeah, the mission is to just help as many people as possible. You know, and my personal one is, like, maximize positive impact and minimize regret. So it's like that's why I dropped out of school is, you know, I want to help people one-to-one, like smiling at a stranger on the street, saying what's up to the FedEx guy, you know, have a great day, brother. You know, but also I want to help, like, a billion people through building really, really great companies. Um, you know, and I want Tenzo to, to win the matcha market. I want to create a billion, a multi-billion dollar company. And um, this is kind of a long shot, you know, and um, Tenzo is getting closer to, you know, that goal. But I think in, in the end, like I want to create like a Coca-Cola or Nestle, you know, I want Tenzo and Dream Pops and Solty and all the best health food companies, you know, as we mature to come together and, you know, try and kick out, these bigger companies that, you know, I don't believe are really doing things right. Um, There's never been a better time in history for something for, for brands to be built. Uh, so I, I love that, man. I really resonate with everything there. It's, it's powerful. Yep. You know, so one day that'd be pretty sick, dude. Tenzo, Dream Pops, all the big boys, we come together. Just a, a multinational company. It'd be sick. I love it. I love it, man. Well, Steve, super inspiring story. Thank you for making 30 minutes for uh, taking 30 minutes out of your day. Um, guys, check out Tenzo. Tenzo's in Dream Pops and all of our vanilla matcha pops. We love the product. Huge fans of Steve's and Rob's and the whole team. So uh, thank you again, man, and, and wishing you an amazing uh, weekend. Appreciate it, DG. Yeah, have a great Friday and a good weekend. Give my best to the other David, and uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. Sounds good, buddy. Have a good right. one. Later.